Whether you grew up with one sibling, three siblings, seven siblings, or zero siblings, there's something appealingly zany about absorbing stories about huge families. Cheaper by the Dozen was probably the first exposure that many of us had to this idea. You may have seen the 1950 movie, or maybe the 2003 version and its 2005 sequel featuring stars like Steve Martin, Hilary Duff, Bonnie Hunt, and Allison Stoner. There's an even newer Cheaper by the Dozen adaptation available on Disney Plus with Zach Braff and Gabrielle Union. But before any of that happened, there was a book published in 1948, inspired by a real family. In fact, two of the 12 siblings in the real Gilbreth family wrote Cheaper by the Dozen, primarily, it would seem, as a tribute to their father, Frank. While I have no doubt their intentions were to honor their family and their childhood memories, it does not read in such an idyllic, nostalgic way in 2023. Let's just say that my guest and I have some questions, and a lot of them. Those questions, along with our many thoughts about Frank Gilbreth, the dad who inspired the bumbling Steve Martin character that so many of us know and love, lead us down so many cool conversational paths in this episode. We talk about narcissism, the problematic nature of efficiency experts, YouTube bro culture, toxic masculinity, mommy bloggers, the Duggars, the ways in which we do or do not hold parents accountable, why dads are allowed to be idiots in pop culture, and even at-home tonsillectomies. Corporal punishment, unfortunately, abounds in this book, so if any kind of child abuse is triggering for you, please take care before you listen. I had such a fantastic time talking with this week's guest, and I can't wait to introduce you to them. Jake Maya Arlo is a Stonewall Honor author, podcast producer, and bagel connoisseur. They studied evolutionary biology and creative writing, not as different as you might think, apparently, at Barnard College. They live with their girlfriend and loud cat, who makes a quiet appearance in this episode, in the Pacific Northwest. Their debut novel, Almost Flying, was a Stonewall Honor book and Barnes & Noble Children's Prize shortlist selection and their debut YA novel, How to Excavate a Heart, was an instant indie bestseller and indie next pick, and received two starred reviews. Their latest book, The Year My Life Went Down the Toilet, is now available for purchase. If you're new to the show, make sure you're following along with all things SSR on social media. We are at SSRPod on Instagram and Twitter, and you can find us on Facebook by searching the SSR Podcast or the SSR Book Club. If you're interested in getting involved with a more active virtual book club, now is a great time to jump into SWR or Shit We Read. We recently started our August discussion about the Society of Shame. Learn more and join us at www.patreon.com SSRpodcast or by going to www.ssrpodcast.com and clicking support at the top of the page. When you join SWR as an SSR patron, you will be supporting the podcast and getting a bunch of super cool exclusive rewards in return. Think monthly newsletters, reading recap videos, bonus episodes, an invite to our Discord channel, access to bonus Q&As with every guest. It's all good stuff. I would love to see you there. I am so grateful for the patrons currently supporting SSR. It truly makes a huge difference in helping the show grow. You can also help the show grow with a five-star rating or review, or by sharing a screenshot of this episode to your Instagram story. Episode 255 is brought to you by Anna Todd's The Falling and The Burning. Set against the backdrop of a military base, 
Best-selling author Anna Todd has written an all-new heart-stopping romance trilogy that is sure to keep you up way after your bedtime. The first two books in the Brightest Stars trilogy are now available wherever books are sold, just in time to help you wrap up your summer reading. If you're feeling panicky about all the books on your summer TBR that you still haven't had a chance to read, might I suggest that you get to them as audiobooks on Libro.fm. You can use code SSRPODCAST on Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, to get a two-month audiobook membership for the price of just one month. Libro.fm is the only place I buy audiobooks because it supports indie booksellers instead of giant corporations. We all rely on Amazon for lots of things, but Libro.fm offers us a chance to direct our dollars elsewhere. The audiobooks you buy there will sound and cost the same as the ones you buy from the big guys. Give it a try and let me know what you listen to and love. Now let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hofkosik, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Jake. Welcome to SSR. Hello. I am more than excited to be here. I'm literally thrilled. Cannot wait to talk about this book. (laughs) We are fired up. Is that fair to say? Yeah. It's so, so fair to say. (laughs) I did not expect this from this book either. Like, I really, I didn't know what we'd be getting into with Cheaper by the Dozen. I grew up watching the movie. Yes. The one with Steve Martin and Bonnie Hunt Mm -hmm. and Hilary Mm -hmm. Duff and like all the other Disney Channel kids. And I sort of thought this was just going to be like a quaint family story, like maybe annoyingly Americana, annoyingly squeaky clean. Yeah. But I just didn't think that there would be that much to dig into. And holy shit. Yeah. Yeah. It sort of covers the gamut. I mean, like, there's a lot. We'll talk about it. There's like child abuse. Like, we'll get into it. (laughs) We have a lot to get into. But first, let's set the stage. Okay, because I'm getting I'm getting so worked up that I probably need to take a step back and give our listeners some context. So the book, as I mentioned, is Cheaper by the Dozen. It was written collectively by Frank B. Gilbreth Jr. and Ernestine Gilbreth Carey, siblings, and two of the 12 children of the Gilbreth family. That's two of the 12 dozen kids of the Gilbreth family. And the book was written, as far as I can tell, kind of as like a tribute to their parents, but especially to their dad. But they're really reflecting on their childhood in this big family. And the book came out in 1948, immediately became a bestseller, uh, led to a sequel, which I wasn't aware of. And then, of course, all these adaptations. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) There was an adaptation in the 50s. Then there was the adaptation, I believe, in 2003. And then there was one that came out on Disney Plus just this last year in 2002 with Zach Braff and Gabrielle Union. And I really need to watch that now. Apparently, it has like little to nothing to do with the original source material, except for the fact that there are 12 kids. Right, and neither does the neither does the 2003 movie. It has literally nothing to do, which I have to say I did watch an hour of it last night because I was like, let me see if this like is anything that I remember it or is anything to do with the book. Nothing at all, but 
I mean, still kind of fun to watch. <laughs> I was going to say, does the movie hold up at least? No, but like, <laughs> well, okay, here's the thing. Hilary Duff, love that girl to pieces. She has one mode and it's like, mom, dad, why are we being so mom? With the like, hand, hands on the hips. Talking. Yeah. Yeah. Like, mm. yeah. She's so, no, she's serving. She's saying like, I love her, but I was like, wow, she really cannot act. So I'm wondering actually if she's like any good in the How I Met Your Mother reboot because I'm hoping she's improved, but her acting was a little, ugh. but I mean, it's still, The Cheaper by the Dozen movie is still so much fun to watch. All I remember is the the middle brother, I think, who like lives in the attic with the frog. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Who like, he's always getting forgotten. It's really sad. Yeah. They call him FedEx because they're like, you got dropped off by like the postman. <laughs> it's really heartbreaking. Okay. I do feel like I want to rewatch that. I am interested in the Zach Braff and Gabrielle Union reboot Me because too. I'm glad that they're bringing in some diversity not everybody needs mm-hmm, to be white mm-hmm. they're trying to make the gilbreths or the gilbreth counterparts a little bit more of the time this version of the gilbreths that we have on paper which i understand to be very true to the actual family with the exception of the fact that one of the 12 kids actually passed away so one of the sisters i believed died of diphtheria when she was five and we obviously don't read about that in the book we just read about like the 12 siblings yeah As far as I understand it, this book is pretty true to what actually happened. Um, And I will say, like, as I was getting into it, and I didn't notice this until I was reviewing my notes today, the dedication to this book is actually really beautiful. Oh, what is it? Because I listened to the audiobook, so I didn't didn't get to read that. Yeah, and I think this is very telling of the two parents, and maybe this offers us a nice way in. It reads, to dad who only reared 12 children and to mother who reared 12 only children. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Hmm. Wait. Oh, can you read that one more time? I I would love to. Okay. So here's the dedication. To dad who only reared 12 children and to mother who reared 12 only children. Oh, that's really interesting because that – shows a level of love for their mother that does not come across in the book. (laughs) No. (laughs) That is really fascinating because I'm like, huh? Like, the whole book was about the dad. Like, front to back. Literally till the very end. (laughs) Let's just start with a couple of quotes about the dad that I pulled, shall we? Yeah, 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 for sure. I mean, it starts with, I'm sure you'll start with it. It starts with, like, fat phobia against the dad. (laughs) So the dad has gained some weight. Which we understand. Yeah. <laughs> a couple of other things that I pulled. One reason he had so many children, there were 12 of us, was that he was convinced anything he and mother teamed up on was sure to be a success. Um, here's another one that I just really thought was interesting. We children used to suspect, though, that one reason he has wanted a large family was to assure himself of an appreciative audience, even within the confines of the home. I also, I also noted that. <laughs> Now, I am not here to pathologize anybody. I'm not a doctor. Sure. I know that we are very careful about using certain diagnostic terms. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. But because the people depicted in this book are, as far as I know, for the most part, no longer with us. Very dead. Very dead. I'm going to go out on a limb. And Jake, feel free to correct me, to chime in. No, no. I think we're on the same page. (laughs) I mean, dad is definitely a narcissist. Yes, for sure. I mean, among other things that are maybe not pathologizable, is that a word? I don't know words. I'm a writer, but... (laughs) Some things that maybe 
are more difficult to capture by a diagnosis. Yes, exactly. That's a beautiful way of saying it. Yeah, narcissism feels right because also, but also like, I mean, just a lot of like self-aggrandizing behavior and thoughts, even separate from that, like truly... I mean, he is, and it was clear because he's also the center of this book, but like he envisioned himself and he placed himself as the center of like these children's world in a way that was like frustrating to them. Like even the second to last chapter where all the girls are finally like starting to date and he's like, I'm going to be like there, like I'm going to be there. And the only reason he stops being there is because kids love him too much at the dance and they're like pinching his cheek. And he's like, I'm not like that. Like, I'm like, I'm, I'm too smart for that. Like Why are they babying me? Right. He like wants to be the center of attention until he doesn't anymore. And then he very much wants to like not be involved with what the other people are doing. Yeah. Then once he's done, like he's out. He's like, I don't want to deal with this anymore at all. (laughs) Yeah. And I'll also note listeners, for those of you who haven't read this book, and I, I, it's interesting, the responses that I've gotten after sharing that I read this on social media, like a lot of people didn't know it was a book. Some people responded and said that they had sort of charming memories of it and several people also were like this is kind of a scary book yeah so I for those who aren't familiar with the book I should have shared this before we're kind of going to jump around because the book doesn't really happen in any chronological order which makes our job easier because I think you and I both have so much to say that it's kind of nice to just be able to like pull in different anecdotes but it's really just a series of like little stories about the family they're not told in any real timeline it's more topical if anything else So if it sounds like we're not going in any chronological order, it's because the book doesn't really go in chronological order. No. But should we, as like a, maybe you're about to get into this, but like there is like sort of a centralized theme of the book, which is the dad's like desire to do everything faster. Yes. I feel, I mean, we should, should we like dig into that? Let's, let's dig into the sort of the family origin story. I agree with you. I think that's important. So we find out that the dad was very smart and was sort of meant to go to college. He was college bound, but he, he was born to this family that didn't have a lot of resources. And if I'm remembering correctly, his father passed away before he was going to college. And so he decided to stay home and work so that he could help his mom and his younger siblings, which is very admirable. So instead of going to college, he got a job as a bricklayer. And in that job, he started to make observations about the most efficient, best way to lay bricks. And he kind of was like condescending to his bosses and to his his coworkers. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the way that the children reflect on the story, you can tell that he told the story in a way that is like, oh, isn't this hilarious the way I was talking to the coworkers? But yeah. I'm sure the coworkers were like, who the fuck is this guy like coming in and like And it wasn't just coworkers. He was talking to like the person who was running, like the shift manager and he was like, you need to do this better. Like and that's his whole like ethos for everything. His whole personality is that like you can do everything better because I've already proven that I can and so everybody else should be able to. Yeah. So he kind of like comes up through the ranks of the construction business. He learns all these different trades and by the time he meets their mom, he has become like a fairly well-known builder. At the same time, their mom, Lily, grew up in this very wealthy family in California. I did do some research on the family in real life and so far all of that tracks and everything that we read about the mom was correct as well I will add that Lily was really smart and wanted to go to college and her parents would only allow her to go to college if she lived at home to take care of her siblings and so she did that 
Yeah, because she was the oldest of like nine. Was it seven or nine yeah, or something? A lot. High, also high, pretty high number. Yeah. yeah. And so they basically were like, okay, you can go to school if you want to as long as you live at home. Yeah. And the parents met when she was in college and they fell in love. And it sounds like they had this very whirlwind love affair. And I do think this is referenced in the book, but it is true that when they got married, the wedding announcement said something to the effect of like, while Lily is a college graduate, she is also quite beautiful. That's real. Yeah, yeah, that was funny. That was, that was, I was like, whoa, really different time. Like so much of this is just like, whoa, different time. Like really, really, really different time. <laughs> yeah, that's real. That actually happened. Um, so they got married and the dad has continued to like, become successful in the construction business and ultimately but wait can we also just put for one thing while he was wooing her this is like just a random thing but he kept all so many things and the thing they're so bizarre that i'm like they have to be true because so many of these things i would think like wow this actually happened in your family or something like it he would like randomly pick her up and put her on top of they were, like, like their refrigerator like, that's so bizarre like stop doing that <laughs> I'm so glad you brought that up because I think I totally blocked it out yeah I was like why are you do and she'd be like I guess I'm I live here now like why is why did he do that he is clearly very interested in being powerful yes and like noticed <laughs> being noticed and I think he was very proud of the fact that she was petite and mm-hmm. that feels like very like <laughs> gendered and of the time. But yes, I remember like he picks her up and I do think it's the refrigerator because I remember writing like she has no bodily autonomy. Like yeah. he's just picking her up. Yeah. I'm pretty sure it was in her parents' home too. Like they were on her turf. It was literally in her, yeah, he was visiting California. Yeah. So bizarre. There's, there's a TikTok of a dog, I think a German shepherd on top of a refrigerator <laughs> that I find hilarious for absolutely no reason at all. Yeah. I mean, it is, it is funny. Like, why is he there? How did he get there? But I find sure. the image of Lily on top of the refrigerator extremely offensive and upsetting. Yeah, yeah. I mean... The whole thing, every anecdote about her is, like, told in a way that's funny and silly, but it's really, like, the most devastating, existentially horrifying thing of, like, wow, women had nothing for so long. And I do have some fun facts about the mom in real life. I would love to hear. That, like, reinforced for me that she was actually really cool, but I had such complicated feelings about her throughout this book because as the relationship and the marriage progresses and he becomes, like more settled in this role of efficiency expert. He does all this research into productivity. Like if he was alive now, he'd very much be like all over YouTube. A tech bro. Right. Like he'd be doing like fake TED Talks. I literally wrote first moment. I was like, wow, he's on that like four hour work week. What's that terrible yes. man? Like, oh, Tim I'm Ferriss. like, this is, yes. I'm like, oh my God, he is, he like, he does, he's like, I don't even want to sit down for meals. He's like, he'd be drinking like Soylent, like, mm-hmm. Oh my God, yep. what a what a piece of work, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he'd be like optimizing his health, optimizing his body. He'd be on mm-hmm, TED Talks. Mm-hmm. Like this is, yeah. he is the 1920s version of that person. And as their relationship continues, she becomes more and more just kind of like absorbed into his world. And while she is not nearly as difficult as he is, and she is much softer and kinder to her children and to the point of that dedication, like she sees her children as individuals, which is yeah, what an idea, whereas her husband sees them as just this like mass of children. She's also complicit in a lot of his bad behavior. And that was upsetting to me because yes. there were a lot of moments when I was like, 
it's clear that she's doing the right thing herself, but like she's also watching him enact a lot of harm on his children. And that was frustrating. But I will tell you, here's the good news, Jake, that after the dad dies, which we do experience in the book. We see see, in the book. (laughs) And I felt like really sad, which was surprising because I hated him so much. I felt nothing. I was like, and also in the audiobook, it was like fun music, like jazz age music. And he was like, at age 55, the doctor told me he had one year to live. And I was like, woo. <laughs> weird. Very weird. I felt like the tonal shift was so intense that oh, I like, I couldn't help but feel sad. And then there was a line about like, we were a piece of him and he was a piece of all of us. And that mm-hmm. piece died. And that like hurt, you know, that hurt me. But yeah. Yeah. So there is this exploration in that chapter of how there's an evolution for their mom after they lose their dad because she loses fear. Like the worst thing that could have happened to her has already happened. And so all of the things that she was once afraid of and that held her back go away because she has to take care of her family. The youngest of their children was two when he died. Wow. I did not. Yeah. Yeah. She was a baby. So she really forged on, but she ended up having this really interesting career of her own. And of course, that career is unfortunately somewhat colored by sexism and the limitations of the fact that she is not a man. But she has some interesting accolades. So she continued working. Ooh, like the real Lillian. Yeah. Here's what she really did. So she continued working as an efficiency expert. But because she's a woman, she had to focus on kitchens. No other industry would welcome her ideas. I love that though. Okay. We have her to thank for a lot of things. So she was the one who redesigned the sort of standard kitchen layout into an L shape because she realized that the triangle. Oh my God. Yeah. She realized that the triangle of like the sink, the like those main appliances was the most efficient. So she played a huge role in making that happen. Wait, that's amazing. Oh my God. I know. Love her for doing that. She also invented the foot pedal garbage can, which... I love. And they attributed that to the dad in the book. Mm -hmm. Nope, that was her. She was instrumental in the idea of putting shelves in fridge doors with special compartments for butter and eggs. That's, um, I literally, I used that this morning. Thank you, Queen. Mm -hmm. She held patents for the wastewater hose for clothes washers and an electric can opener. Oh, interesting. You know what? That one didn't stick for me. I'm still using a manual one, but I love that she did that. Yeah, I do feel like the electric ones are a little bit unpredictable but yeah cool that she figured it out but like in 1930 or whenever she did that like that's amazing yeah she argued for counters to be of uniform height which I feel like maybe has become less impressive over the years because it's it's not necessarily feasible for people of all abilities to use but at the time I'm sure it was very yeah it was probably cost savings and it probably made life easier for a lot of people she went on to consult for IBM and GE Okay. Um, And then she also was brought in to Johnson & Johnson to carry out some groundbreaking study into the perfect menstrual pad. I don't think they've cracked that one, though. No, I don't know that she made as much progress there as she did in kitchens, but uh, she tried. So I do think, like, she's a pretty cool person. She lived to be 93, which especially her husband died at such a young age. Like, she lived many years. Yeah, she had a whole other life. Yeah. And I think that given, like, the intensity of his role in their life, like, it was so important to him to loom so large in their family. It would be very easy for somebody like her to just kind of, like, give up, I think. But she yeah. didn't. And I I have a lot of respect for her, and I loved learning about her. And while I still feel like she was complicit in a lot of things that she shouldn't have been, if this book is correct, I don't know. I She won some points with me in the real life version of her story. 
Yeah. I mean, I think like a lot of that's really cool. I think though, like, and it is amazing that she was able to like, because he had this work and she sort of took up the mantle, like she was able to like transcend a lot of what women probably weren't able to do at the time. Generally though, I have a problem with like the whole concept of what he was doing of like being an efficiency expert, which for many reasons, first of all, because he literally like helped create like factory workers basically that was like partially him obviously it had like ford model t whatever and those are actually like mentioned in the book but like he did a lot of things that i think probably are not we're we're still sort of struggling with and also literally like among other things like banging his children's elbows on the table which we can talk about and i like still am like i'm like physically was in pain like listening to that but like just the idea that every single thing is like a measure of how efficiently you can do something. I know people who exist like this now, but it's just such a devastating way to live. It's like you can't relax. You can't enjoy things. You're just doing things to get them done as quickly as possible. Like what aspect of his life was he actually enjoying? Did he enjoy his kids or were they just his like test subjects? I have like, I don't know, that part I was like, ooh, (laughs) among other parts. (laughs) Yes. I mean, I think in both tangible and intangible ways, the legacy of his work and of his philosophies and of his approach to life have unfortunately continued until today in such a way that has been really hard on people's mental health, has played a huge role in just like this hustle culture that we are, I think, just seeing the consequences of now. And as you said, like his contribution to the factory work system We all know that people who work in factories are oftentimes treated very poorly, not compensated fairly. So yeah, in all kinds of ways, I think that his approach, and as you said and acknowledged, it's not just him, but he was obviously part and like a big part of this movement that has not done us a whole lot of favors. And that's to say nothing of the way he operated in his own home. And I think we should start to get into some of those specifics. Yes. (laughs) How he just, his obsession with not wasting time, like he would not let his kids brush their teeth without A, checking off the fact that they brushed their teeth. Like he had a whole chart Mm -hmm. in the bathroom, like a chore chart equivalent, but it was every single thing they had to do in a day. But while they were doing those things, they also were expected to be listening to like educational records so that they could learn different languages and gain like music appreciation. <laughs> right. They were never allowed to just exist. And they were never allowed to just like, I don't know, practice basic hygiene without doing something edifying. And it does feel so actually like, I don't want to say ahead of its time, though it, it, it is ahead of its time. Yeah. Like, I'm sure there were so like, because you don't think of, because this took place starting in like, the 1910s moving into the 1920s you don't think of that as a time where people were like you can't enjoy it. you're like oh those are the halcyon days where children were outside playing and it's like no actually for this specific family these were not those days these children were constantly like i hope as adults these kids grew up to enjoy things luxuriate in things like sit with a coffee in the morning like they were not allowed to just like sit at the table they literally couldn't bring up things they wanted to talk about if it was what was the phrase that he used if it wasn't like for the good of the table or something or yeah something yeah something like that like if it wasn't of of general interest of general interest yeah but it was really of interest to him because he was the one making the decisions about whether or not a topic was or wasn't of general interest right which they they told which was the same with a lot they said this as like a silly anecdote like oh he's saying you know it's not of general interest except oh he was just thinking about Greece and now he's like well Greece obviously for the rest of the night that's going to be of general interest or wherever it had been that he was like thinking of but it's obviously obviously they were saying it as sort of sometimes he is 
sort of like the butt of the joke in the book. But even when he is, it's like, oh, our silly, hapless dad. But it's like, no, your dad was like malicious. Like, <laughs> Yeah, I have so many things I want to say. The first is quicker. So I'll say that now. I think that what is extra complicating about all of this is that it's not as though, at least in my view, I would love your thoughts, of course. Mm-hmm. It's not as though he's trying to give his children these educational opportunities and encouraging them to listen to new languages and learn all of these new things because he wants them to have a better life than he did. He's doing these things because he wants them to be like him. And he's constantly using himself and his intelligence and his accomplishments as the ruler against which they're they should measure themselves yeah and so like when they are maybe struggling with having to spend all this time listening to educational records instead of listening to them or even like if you want to take a tough love approach with your kids I guess that's up to you sure but he doesn't even do that he is like well I can do it so why can't you like it's very much the self-aggrandizement this is the narcissist thing that I am just, I feel really strongly about. It wasn't just be more like me, yeah. I don't think, because I, I do agree with that. It's also like be the type of kid I can show off. Because he literally, he would be like, he w- brought his kid to like a touch typing contest. He would film them. Like it wasn't just do this for me. And it honestly reminds me a lot of like, because I've been just thinking about this a lot because it's of general interest to me you now, but um, like mommy bloggers and just kids who are growing up now in like the age of being filmed and that type of conversation, which obviously is, you know, in the public sphere, a lot of people are talking about it and I've just always been interested in it. But it really is like, you are doing this to show off for gain. Like it's not to help your kids as you were saying, it's to show that you can do this and that you can, like he even, I mean, from the time his kid is like two weeks old, he's like, I'm using this kid as like an experiment. And he'll call like, oh, this kid, it's the new model. That's like his little joke. But like, it's not a joke to him. It's like a very real thing to him that this is the newest test subject that I can use to try to raise the perfect right child that I can show off and that can be like the most optimized, efficient citizen in the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's all so well said and so important. I'm glad you mentioned it. Then I think the bigger conversation that's coming up for me while we dig into this is that I feel like this book is very, it's a great example of this, I don't know if we call it a trope or just this theme or this thing that we've made an allowance for over the years where like, If we're talking about very patriarchal families, if we're talking about a gender binary, we see so many families that give dads specifically this space to be idiots. Mm. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. sometimes in being idiots, that means that they get things wrong and they're silly. But sometimes in being idiots, it means that they, like this dad, are sometimes like not very good dads, but yet because they are dads and because we in our culture like give them license to mess up more we're able to laugh about it rather than holding them to account and I I've done some reading about this where like you know a lot of people look back at their moms and sort of like whether they say it out loud or not like hold them more accountable for like their traumas or things that were challenging for them as kids yeah and they struggle to do that with their dads and I have read also that like in a lot of homes, it's because moms do tend to spend more time with their kids. That's just like the way our family structures tend to be built for better or worse. But I do think that this book like really puts that on display. Like no matter what this dad does, 
their reaction to him seems to be the same, which is like, oh, classic dad. Like, you know him, whether that's spanking them, whether that is hitting their, literally hitting their skull, not just spanking them, like real bad physical abuse. (laughs) All over there. Like, there's so much corporal punishment in this book. Yeah. Keep set off bombs in the house. (laughs) Right. And no matter what, whether it's that, whether it's chaperoning them on dates when they're teenagers, Mm -hmm. whether it's profiting off of their skills by like thrusting them in front of a camera or having them interviewed for a newspaper, whether it's like being a bad driver. And all of those things are obviously very different. Yeah. No matter what, the reaction is the same, which is like, oh, classic dad. Like what a great memory. And I just think it's so it's like some of it is revisionist history. Like you look back at your parents and you can't help but like try to put them in a perfect light, but it's tough to read. Also, because it is written by two siblings looking back at their past, it's not, you know, a fiction, though obviously I'm sure some amount of it is fictionalized, but in my mind, most of it I'm sure is pretty close to what happened or at least like a memory. Obviously, memory is very valuable or whatever, but yeah, but like it's especially because it's these two siblings coming together they probably were both thinking okay what are our like best memories of our dad maybe as they're writing it they're like oh these are actually like kind of scary memories like literally when he he wanted to take photos inside so he's like putting the cloth over him and like setting off like the whatever it is explosive like powder and the kids are like shaking like the little kids are scared they're upset and that's like oh haha classic dad as you were saying yeah I think obviously there is so much more leeway for dads to have this like bad behavior and then still be remembered fondly but I do think it is sort of like it's a trade-off because like like you were saying when most people they think oh their mom is like there their mom is the person who is actually there and It's sort of brushed over in the book because there isn't a chapter of this book that's not about the dad. It literally could be called, like, the dad of 12 children. Like, it fully is just about the dad, which, like, that's fine. That's, like, what the book is about. But there are moments when they'll just glance over, they'll be like, oh, he was regularly in Europe for months at a time. It's like, okay, so what did you do then? Like, what were you doing without your dad? How did your mom, like, run the house? Like, clearly she ran it well because you had no anecdotes about it. Like, things just went smoothly and you weren't, like, in pain and you weren't suffering and you were just, like, going to school and vibing. But, like, we don't see that because it's not noteworthy because it's not, like, a crazy dad story. She ran it so well and she was so committed to running it in fact that the reason that she had home births with all but one of her children was because she didn't trust that she could leave the house to go to a hospital to give birth aka deal with a massive physical trauma Mm -hmm. and come home and have the house still standing that's why she had home births she also would be like she was trying to explain to her kids how babies are made which not successfully um she was like it's not the stork but it's the bees um but she was like, they were saying, and I didn't understand whether or not it was a reference to, because this book also is so horny. They're like talking about their parents fucking all the, all the time. time. Oh my God, it is weird. It is weird. I'm like, these are the children of these adults talking about it. But I didn't understand fully if it was her saying, oh, we're not too loud when we're having sex or I'm not too loud when I'm giving birth. But her biggest concern was like, but you're not hearing me like do this, right? And I'm like, girl, you're pushing a baby out of your vagina. Like, please feel free to like scream, like do whatever you gotta do. Or alternatively, if it's sex, like honestly powerful that they're like, they're having sex after 12 children. But like- Yeah, I mean, my understanding is that she was referencing giving birth and giving trying birth, to be quiet. Yeah. But even like yeah. the fact that 
you know, there's this implication that, like, she basically is just, like, chilling while she's in labor and doing going about her business and then, like, goes into the bedroom for, like, a few hours and then all of a sudden there is a baby. She went this route because she did not trust her husband to keep things under control while yeah. she was gone. Yeah. And that's very explicit in the book. It is very explicit. And that is honestly the only thing that carries over from the book to the movie, like this, the um, Steve Martin movie, is that like in the first scene when she's gone, she also, it's so funny. I don't know if you remember this part, but the reason she leaves home is because she's going on like a book tour. Yes. This is in, because no, but it's so funny. I was, I could not stop laughing. So they're like, we're going to publish your book. She flies to New York. They're like, they hand her the finished copy of the book. They're like, also, we need you to stay now for two weeks for a book tour. I'm like, yes, I love how publishing works. <laughs> Uh, Jake, is that your author experience? Tell me. <laughs> That's actually, yeah. They're like, they fly me to New York. They surprise me. Tell me my book is published. They hand me it's a copy done. of it. And then they say, surprise, two weeks, you're going on tour. And then they tell her, like, we can't publish your book if you don't go on this tour. Anyway, that definitely a tangent. But I was like, oh, my God. Nobody lost money on that. Nobody was going to lose. Yeah. No, no. Of course. But in the movie, it's, like, he's at home and everything goes haywire and like it's also played for like slapstick like comedy and I think to a certain extent like that kind of scene still would happen like even though like I think we're sort of moving away from like hapless dad like heterosexual parent like drama which is just ends up being like misogyny and like being very like comfortable with how dads are like can be terrible parents obviously not all dads but most of the ones we're seeing on tv and specifically reading in this book but that is like, it's interesting that that's sort of the one thing that carried over. And I don't even think it was purposeful. It's not like, oh, we're sticking to the source material. So we're making this dad a piece of shit. It's like, that just is how dads are. Haha, ha, isn't it funny? Everything goes haywire. Like children vomit, then spit, like slip in the vomit, then vomit again. Like, I don't know. I thought it was also funny that, yeah, it's the one thing that carries over is that like the dad can't maintain the household and when the mom is home everything's running like perfectly efficiently and smoothly they're like throwing peanut butter sandwiches at each other like it's all working yeah and that I think is very clear in this book that that's what would happen if she were to leave for even long enough to have a child and again undergo major medical surgery speaking of a major medical issue or oh condition, my god we have to talk about the tonsillectomies the tonsils Oh my, I, I mean, I couldn't stop thinking about just like what, how did they survive this? First of all, like doing any surgery and they were put asleep with ether. They put a cloth with ether and then up to their nose and then they put the wrong kid to sleep. There's so much wrong here. So the family doctor has, has basically been pushing the parents to get tonsillectomies for all the kids because, except one, yeah. except one doesn't need one. Except one who didn't get the measles either. Right. She's a healthy queen. She's has a really strong immune system. He's been resisting getting these surgeries because, of course, his family is above these kinds of procedures. Right. They don't get sick. No. They are born yeah. with perfect tonsils. <laughs> so why should they need to be taken out? Yeah. But then he decides that this could be a great opportunity for him to work with the doctor. Emotion study. Right. Emotion <laughs> study to see how quickly one can actually remove the tonsils of a child. Mm -hmm. And not only that, but they do it in their home. Yeah. In their home laboratory. That feels like not atypical for the time. Was like Having never taken out tonsils, I don't know. But <laughs> it feels to me like maybe there should have been an office of some sort. For sure, for sure, for sure. They sort of set up this makeshift operating room in the house. And he has decided that he's going to take photos. Like, it's going to be a whole study. I, th I mean, there are several points throughout this book where he actually uses the phrase guinea pigs. And this might have been one of them. Yeah, yeah. But he, like, lines them all up 
And the doctor's like, great, like, let's get this shit done. Like, let's bang them out, like, for lack of a better phrase. Yeah. And, yes, at one point they they put the wrong child under ether. So the one girl who, like, did not need her tonsils out ends up, No, like, oh, no, but actually it wasn't – they had put the right child under, but they didn't realize because I guess they didn't look at their tonsils, <laughs> but she had – her tonsils right. were fine. And yes. so they call, they say, oh, those are – you're not Martha, you're Ernestine, but you have Martha's tonsils, so I'm going to call you Martha. <laughs> like It's chaos. It's full chaos. And also, I was like – so – I guess even back then, I don't fully understand why. You're not supposed to eat before surgery. Right. I know you're not supposed to. I, I'm not a doctor. I don't actually know why you're not supposed to. I guess it makes sense. Maybe it's the way the anesthesia works. But they're using ether on your mouth. But this girl, Martha, who had Ernestine's tonsils, she ate like a full pie and donut breakfast. And then she got her tonsils out. Like, how did she survive? <laughs> they were like, oh, well, I guess we'll have to do it anyway. But my favorite part of this whole scene, and by favorite, I mean least favorite, yeah. Is that dad is, of course, going to be the grand finale. Like, everybody else is going to go first. Of course. But he is going to be the last one of the day. And I'm sure that even after being in surgery, his children are expected to be there cheering him on. Right. Because not only is he going to get his tonsils out, but he is going to get his tonsils out without any anesthesia or pain medicine. Because he is above it and he is tough and this is really not that big of a deal. One of many, many examples of such like raging toxic masculinity that I, yeah, I like almost couldn't take it. And I've read a lot of old books for this podcast. Like I've read a lot of books where we get some toxic masculinity on display, but this one might just take the cake. Okay, but before we say what he did, yeah. can I just actually comment on the toxic masculinity? It's not just, I also feel like when I read old books, I read toxic yeah. masculinity. I'm like, you know, okay, fine. That's how people were. You can't change the past. Right. For this one, I'm like, the thing about it, though, is that it's so current. Like, I know this man. Like, this man still exists. And I think that's why it's so surprising. It's because this, like, tech bro, efficient, macho, narcissistic man, like, totally exists. And that's why it's like, oh, my God, you existed in 1910 and now you're still existing today. Like, how is this? Yeah. How have we not progressed as a society? Yeah, we can't move past him. No. Please tell them what he did. <laughs> Actually, I, I'm almost forgetting what happened after because I was so upset. He almost dies because he go, he comes home. They take him back in a cab and he's like stumbling home and he's on the verge of death. And they're like, what happened to dad? And he he's just. I mean, like, I don't wish harm on anybody, but like kind of good riddance. Yeah. That was a bad, that was a stupid decision on his part. Like he just had to be the tough guy. I'm glad he was okay and that his children did not have to see anything traumatic at that point. But yeah, I mean, that situation, and that, that happened pretty early on in the book. And I was like, what more could possibly happen? Yeah. Oh, young, naive you who didn't know. <laughs> I want to spend some more time talking about the third to last and second to last chapters we touched on them briefly before but there's a lot to dig into while we're kind of talking about the toxic masculinity of it all and just the dad continuing to be disappointing and gross those two chapters were fascinating to me as like a peek into dating culture during this time period as a peek into Mm -hmm. patriarchy misogyny the dynamics of dating as a young person the dynamics of like presenting yourself as a young person in this time period yeah these two chapters are really about the experience of the teenage girls in the family who are 
really excited to redefine themselves, rebrand themselves, try to dress differently and put on makeup or paint. Because it's also the twenty, like it's the twenties right. happening. So like we're 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 in the jazz age, baby. <laughs> they want to bob their hair, like they want to be cute. And he, the dad has very strong feelings about how they're supposed to look. Yeah. And you earlier, Jake, referenced the mommy blogger culture and the the sort of contemporary parallel that I kept thinking about while I was reading this book, specifically these two chapters. And this is my own like niche interest, but it has been in the zeitgeist quite a bit lately is the Duggars. I was going to say, and the buddy system too. From yep. the very beginning, I literally wrote, oh, uh-huh. you you open a can of worms because that's also my, yeah. The parentification yeah. of the older children, the expectation <laughs> yes. that Anne, the oldest daughter, is responsible for the youngest. Is literally responsible for them. I wanted to talk about the buddy system because before we talk about dating, because from the very beginning, they're like, they have the buddy system and the middle, the, obviously it's for those unfamiliar, they do this with the Duggars yes. too, the older girls specifically are in charge of younger children. And then the middle ones in this family are just in charge of themselves. And they say the dad as well is counted as a middle child and he is only in charge of himself. And I'm like, so you're saying he's a child. Right. And the Duggars, the whole joke is that like the mom is responsible for each baby until the baby. Yeah. And then the baby is passed off to one of the oldest sisters. Yeah. So I have a sort of, I guess, an academic or sociological fascination with the Duggars. The book that I am currently revising to go out on submission hopefully soon is about megachurch culture and fundamentalist culture. And so I spent a lot of time in that. And then, of course, Shiny Happy People came out on Prime a couple of months ago. So I do think there's been a lot of talk about the Duggars. Mm -hmm. There were a lot of moments in this book where I was like, this feels the systematization of the household, which is necessary, I'm sure, when you have that many kids is very reminiscent of the way that the Duggars live their lives. And, you know, there's all of this coverage about how the reason that the TLC show was so popular before people understood, like, the insidious nature of the IBLP and of their faith was because people were fascinated by these systems. And I do think that, like, right, that's probably why people like this book because it's just interesting to see how people live their lives. But when we look at those – when you look at those last two chapters, for example, like – the dad has a specific idea of how his daughter should look. And Jim Bob Duggar has been on record talking has a about very how specific idea. Right. He wouldn't let his daughters cut their hair. He liked their hair to be long and curly and curled. Yep, they yep. would perm their hair themselves. They spent so long curling their hair. God. Right. The dresses, the skirts, like so much of the way that they presented themselves until they were married off really was based on what he wanted them to look like. And that is kind of where we find the family in this book in those two chapters as well. Yeah. And there's also this like slut shaming thing going on where they're talking about like other girls at school who have developed faster and who like wear certain clothes and how like, oh, dad would never want his daughters to look like that. There's just, there's so much in those two chapters. But also the interesting thing about that, again, is like none of this control comes from a religious standpoint, which is actually so interesting because so much now when you would think of this type of man, though not necessarily as an individual, but with a family like this, it's not like a quiverful ideology that was making him have all these kids. They literally were like, before they had kids, they were like, let's have 12. Great. We agreed. Let's have 12. We're doing that. And then they did that. And it was sort of like a almost like manifest destiny type vibe of like very like we're doing we're making true what we are thinking and like even in the book like his religiosity doesn't come from any belief in god it comes just from the idea that he wants his children to have a full education in every aspect so they they'll go to sunday school not 
because he believes in God. Though it's never said he doesn't. I'm sure he right. has, in 1910, he had some... But he doesn't go to church. No, he himself doesn't. The mom does, but only because she gets involved with, like, the Sunday school, like, PTA of it all. Yeah. But he just wants them to have that experience of having that knowledge because, you know, the Bible teaches us stories or whatnot. And, like, that's just the baseline of it. And I always... I mean, like... Also, just like as a Jew, I always find this kind of thing fascinating, especially because I'm like, we only actually, I was kind of surprised, had like one moment of anti-Semitism in the book, which is like kind of great. But there was like, he was, he was like, I forget what it exactly it was, but they were, the mom was like, oh, you're being like a Shylock right now. And I was like, woo, there we go. Check, <laughs> Check that off the yeah, bingo card. Like, wow. Yeah. yeah, right. I'm like, well, we have the racism. We have so, so, so much. much racism. Oh my God. And like really antique racism happening um but i was like huh only one moment of anti-semitism <laughs> yeah i mean there we would be remiss not to at least briefly mention without saying too much because i don't want to say <laughs> yeah. too much yeah no. but there is just this like fetishization exoticization hey, oh look at this beautiful cat yes he's so glorious <gasps> he has something can you, can to you say. say he does listeners okay, this buddy. gorgeous cat is literally like trying to say something on the microphone he he has like a lot of thoughts about the book um and i'm just gonna i don't blame him i too have a lot of thoughts yeah. about the book he wishes there were more cats <laughs> <laughs> more cat rep there was talk about a dog yeah. but they didn't get the dog there was they did get the dog Oh, right. I'm, okay, see, I'm thinking about the yeah. sheep, how he accidentally killed all those sheep and didn't care. Remember when he got the sheep? and then he, But they got the dog. He got outvoted on the they dog. They did get the dog. He didn't want yes. the dog, but they got the dog. And your cat wants them to get a cat, and I don't blame, yeah. I don't blame him. Um, no, there's this, like, constant fetishization, exoticization, like, use of racial slurs, just general, like, hateful behavior about and yeah. toward anybody who's not white and Christian, there's some like explicit commentary specifically about an Asian cook that works in the grandparents' home. Both parents use like certain slurs over and over again to describe like yeah. things that happen in everyday life in a way that I just like don't even understand how you use that as a shorthand. Again, it, it, it does feel the kind of thing where it's like, this is just yeah. what people were saying. Not that it excuses it, but it is very interesting to read because I'm like, wow, like that true. Like, it's like when you read like just a word that you don't read that much. And you're like, whoa, huh? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> whoa. Yeah. yeah. You just have to like keep it moving. Yeah. But yeah, I feel like I we got off on the on the racism Sorry, tangent. Yes. No, I was so I'm so glad we went there. We were talking about the slut shaming of it all and just yes, like the, yes. the dads need to be involved in every aspect of his kids' lives, including like his his daughter's specifically sexuality. Oh, we were also talking about the manifest destiny of like how they were going to have 12 mm-hmm. children. They were going to have six and six. That was also very important mm-hmm. to them. Do you know if that is actually the number that ended up happening yeah, in the real family? I think so. That's so wild. Yeah, which <laughs> is wild. Like the way that he talked about like – the sexes of his children too was mm-hmm. like so messed up and there was a whole chapter about that and it was like uh yeah him i have a quote if you're interested please oh this is really fun this one so they had four girls back to back and he's like well i guess i am only gonna have sons for the rest of my life yeah he resigned himself to be a girl dad right <laughs> that sucks for me and they have four daughters and then one son And this is a quote that I just, I love to share this on mic. It feels so good, by which I mean not at all. 
Having fathered one son, dad took it pretty much for granted that all the rest of his children would be boys. The first four were just practice, he'd say to mother while glaring with assumed ferocity at the girls. Of course, I suppose we ought to keep them. They might come in handy someday to scrub the pots and pans and mend the socks of the menfolk, but I don't see that we need any more of them. Yes. <laughs> I want to emphasize again that we are speaking in a very binary language, which is the language of this time. Oh, uh, yeah. Obviously. Yeah. There, there was truly one where it was so funny where it was like, they was like, oh, it's not a boy or a girl. And he was what like, what well, <laughs> <laughs> I call that out too. So like, it's very clear that this is the language that he yeah. speaks, but just like, the explicit nature of just how sexist he is is just yeah it shouldn't surprise yeah. me and yet somehow it does i know it is it's it's like it is i think the thing is like it's obviously expected like it's like okay yeah. this person the book itself was written in the 1940s which we weren't we weren't doing much no. better over here and then it takes place in the 1910s and before, I also found it so funny when it was like, they said something like, I have the quote, like, fashionable young ladies in the 90s. And I was like, wow, the 1890s. I don't think about her that often. Um, there but she is. It is. It's so, it's like expected. It's like, okay, obviously it'll be racist. Obviously there's going to be anti-Semitism. Obviously there'll be misogyny. But it's like, I think because we are obviously mapping what we, like, there are so many parallels to today that it, then when there is so much, like, virulent misogyny, it's like, oh, yeah, like, that still does exist. Yeah. Like, but it's, like, it's just so, like, you would probably not hear a father say that explicitly, I would hope, now. But you might still. <laughs> you might. I think that if I am being generous and I'm trying to think of, mm -hmm. of what this book is doing at its best. Sure. It is that it is reflecting on family life. It is that it yeah. gave the authors an opportunity to sort of capture process. process. Maybe they didn't go to therapy. I think that they really yeah. would have benefited from that. Needed it. Yeah. Needed it. I think that hopefully it gave them an opportunity to like sit down and spot memories and like put that on paper yeah. and to honor their family in a way that I guess felt good to them. I personally would like be very upset if this was how somebody wrote about me, whether it was true or not, because it is like very unflattering, yeah. at least all these years later. But I, I do think that there is like this zany nature of like what it's like to have all these kids. And there was a moment yeah. when um, I forget who said it, but one of the kids was like, what do only children do? Yes, I was just going to say that because I think and I will say if we're like sort of wrapping up yeah. our thoughts, obviously I have many, many, many problems yeah. with this book. But like, I didn't hate reading it. Like right. there were parts of it, especially because I grew up for the first 13 years of my life as an only child. So I was like, whenever I read, when I was a kid, I was obsessed with reading books. Like my best friend had seven, like, or like five, I don't know where I pulled seven out, five kids in her family. And like my, like, you know, like I just loved reading stories about families with so many kids. I can totally see myself having read this as a kid, which I didn't. And I'm thankful I didn't because those ideas did not need to be put up in this little head. But like, I could totally see myself having been like, this is so fun. Like, especially towards the end, they're doing like a skit where they're making fun of their dad and like the way they all gang up together. Like there's these little nuggets and moments where I'm like, that's kind of cool. That's kind of fun. Like just the idea of having this many kids and having them be their own little like society. Like that was always so appealing to me as a kid. Like even just having like two siblings I was like, oh, I'm so jealous of people who have like any siblings. So there is that, 
even though obviously I would not have wanted to be part of this family, but there is like an aspect of it where I'm like, I can totally see how, and especially they'll say, they'll say it throughout. It's like, no one can understand what it was like having lived in a family with 12 kids unless they, and they would not have been able to assimilate into their family unless they too had grown up in a family of 12 kids, which back then probably a few, there were some people who had grown up in families of 12 kids, but like that aspect of it to me didn't make up for the rest of it that I kind of hated. But there were moments where I was like, oh, that's like cool. That's fun. That's nice. And like that aspect of it, I don't hate. (laughs) Yeah, I agree with you. I didn't hate reading the book. I just had such strong feelings about the dad. And in some ways, I do think that kept me engaged. Like these are the kinds of books that I love reading for the podcast because they give us so much to dig into. And as frustrated as I was with the parents, like I did find a lot of reasons to love the mom, especially after I did more research. And while I don't agree at all with like the vast majority of their methods, I do appreciate the fact that they were so focused on giving their kids this sense of curiosity and like teaching them and just like, I don't know, I I do think that in their very misguided way, like they (laughs) wanted their kids to be lifelong learners and that's cool and I would be interested to find out like how the children of the children of these 12 kids yes have made their way in the world and how this legacy has gone on because you know there's like 150 of them at this point so just because of the way math humans work just math. yeah exponential growth or whatever exactly and there was also from the very beginning there was an aspect of it especially they line up in height order they're called on a whistle there was an aspect of it that reminded me of like the sound of music and that like was the vhs tape as a child that i watched like the most out of anything Same. like wore it out and yeah. so like there's like an aspect of it that that's kind of nice to me where I'm like yeah. that and especially they, when they like gang up on their like aunt or their like grandma <laughs> yeah. there's like when all of them are working together as a unit against adults I'm like that's fun that's yeah. nice you should be doing that more <laughs> it's very Von Trapp trying to you get could the government out you could unionize yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well this has been such a great conversation I have loved chatting with you about this book but I'm gonna have to pull us away from it because I want to make sure we get a chance to chat with you about other things that you have been reading lately yes. that you might recommend to our listeners that do not have perhaps such a detestable character although we like treat unlikable characters in fiction we do but not people who are real (laughs) not this not this weird auto fiction seemingly very memoirish book um what else have you been reading lately that you loved and that you would recommend okay well yes first of all thank you for inviting me on and honestly having me read this book because there was no other world in which I read it so (laughs) this is great it's why I live exactly so I actually have been reading the his dark materials series for the first time I'm on the second one I read the first one as a kid like a very little kid I was probably five or six I read the first hundred pages of it and I not I remember specifically I'm from Long Island I was sitting on the Long Island Railroad (laughs) heading to the city to visit my grandma I remember sitting there like reading the same paragraph six times being like this is not a book for children I was like I don't understand it and I'm reading it again I'm like it's not a book for children but uh it's amazing I'm really 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 enjoying reading it which like I haven't been able to really read physical books for a long time mostly been doing audiobooks I've been having just some attention struggles but this one has me like engaged like I am there I'm sitting I'm reading and just like I love the world building I love and as this is your whole mo but I love going back and reading something that I didn't necessarily read as a kid and being like maybe it's good I didn't read it as a kid but like I'm getting something out of it as an adult and like I'm loving it so that's fun that's great we did an episode about the first book a long time ago and I remember reading it and being like this is so much deeper than I remember because I read it yeah I wasn't five or six but I was definitely like 
I don't know, maybe eight or nine. And I was like precocious enough to know that I wanted to read it and to stay engaged with it. But like, I didn't really understand what was going on. Yeah, I mean, I love that the whole book is about like, Lyra needs to like, learn that she wants to fuck. And then like, when she does, like the world will be saved. And that's so iconic of her. Yeah. (laughs) So yeah, I do want to go back and read read that one again, just because I feel like there's always something new to get out of it. And maybe we'll do like more episodes about some of the other books too. And also someone told me, so the American editions of the books for the third one mm. do not read because they are censored actually in Lyra's Sexual Awakening, apparently. So when I get to that, I'm going to find the British version or like the adult version, which is funny that there is like an adult version because it is a child's book. And it, it's totally appropriate for children. The language is a little tough, but yeah, I would totally have like a 10 year old read it. But the audiobooks that came out when the um, HBO series came out are narrated by Philip Pullman mm. and they're full cast and they're like a joy to listen to. So like, I don't know, like a road trip or something. Like as a, like a kid, I would always listen to fantasy books with my mom. Like we would take the CDs out of the library and we would listen to them yeah. on road trips. And like, that is so much fun. So Maybe that fun. could be like a summer activity. If anyone listening has like a 12 year old, <sighs> that feels like a great idea. I love yeah. that idea. Well, thank you for that yeah. recommendation. <laughs> um, and as this episode drops, your new book has been on shelves for a week. Congratulations. Yes. Thank and, you. And I want to hear everything about it. Yes. So my book, The Year My Life Went Down the Toilet, um, is a middle grade novel. So another, thank you, another one, if you got a 12-year-old, do a back-to-back, do a history materials, then for a little break between the first and the second, you could do The Year My Life Went Down the Toilet, um, because it is a book about seventh grader Al, who is just sort of struggling, and then she gets diagnosed with Crohn's disease, which is a chronic illness, and she's just struggling in many aspects of her life until she finds a Crohn's disease support group that they affectionately name each other the Bathroom Club. And it's just the story of that group of kids going through seventh grade together, the story of her and her best friend and their parents and how that relationship evolves because they all live in the same like apartment complex and friendships lost, found, seventh grade, theater, poop, queerness, chronic illness, silliness. I probably wrote poop more in this book than like anyone else has ever written in a a novel, which like I'm kind of proud of. So yeah. <laughs> it's a record. Well, it sounds like there's so much important content in that book and also like plenty of doses of fun. It's so important that we are talking about chronic illness, that we are giving kids a language around chronic illness when they're younger, whether they are going to be someone who is one day diagnosed with a chronic illness or whether they are just going to be around people who have chronic illness. Because I remember like when I first heard about Crohn's disease when I was, I don't know, in high school, I had never heard of it. And I wished that I had been given like a more empathetic, respectful vocabulary around it so that I could be more respectful and empathetic when I learned that. Um, (laughs) Because I have since been diagnosed with stomach chronic illnesses as well. And like, I wish. It is not rare. No, it is not rare. And it is not glamorous. No, but also it's like, again, everyone, literally everyone poops. But and also most people, especially in our anxiety ridden times have some amount of stomach issues. So we got to be talking about it. It's not embarrassing. It could be embarrassing. But literally, it's something everyone does. It's like being embarrassed to talk about like, I don't know, going for a walk on the street or like going just for a drive. Like it's like everyone does it. It's fine. We're all good. (laughs) You know who I bet doesn't poop? Who? 
the Geldrass. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, he like he like squats for one second, gets it all out, and then he's like, you have five seconds on the toilet. No, for sure. For real. <laughs> and his daughters definitely do not poop. They've never, they've never pooped. Mm, never. No. Bringing no. us full circle. <laughs> well, I am thrilled for you about the year my life went down the toilet. We are running a giveaway this week over on Instagram listeners, so go check that out at SSRPod. Jake, I have loved having you on the show. This was so fun. I'm telling you, this is like exactly the conversation that I live for on the podcast. And I'm so glad that I got to have it with you. So thank you. Yes, thank you so much for having me. (laughs) Thanks. SSR is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR Podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind-the-scenes inside scoop, and some good old-fashioned book talk. Find us at SSRPod on Instagram and Twitter, and search SSR Podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast.